Good Evans, it's a Bobcast. Welcome to episode 38. My name is Bob Evans, although by day I go by the name Kevin Mitchell. If this is your first time to the podcast, welcome to it. This is a, a music podcast where I just have a conversation with friends and people I admire about whatever the hell we feel like talking about at the time and also about the music that has helped to shape their lives and inform who they are as people. You can contact me. I have an email address. That email address is goodevansbobcast. Not Good Evans, it's a Bobcast, just all lowercase goodevansbobcast at gmail.com. If there's any kind of correspondence you'd like to engage in with me, all comments and suggestions are welcome, as well as just praise. That's also fine. In fact, a better place to leave your praise, though, is in the rate and review section on iTunes. Just an idea. Totally up to you. Also, on Spotify, there is a playlist. It's the Good Evans, It's a Bobcast soundtrack. And on that playlist, all the songs that my guests have chosen from all the episodes going right back to episode one uh, get added to that list. So if you want to check out any of the songs we talk about, that's probably the easiest place to go and do it. How's your 2020 going? The year is almost over, which is hard to believe. It's weird because despite the fact that I haven't been able to tour or perform live and and I'm based in Victoria where the restrictions have been in place for a really long time, the year still managed to kind of go by quickly. Um, I am excited, however, to be able to say that finally after going into the studio in March, right before all this coronavirus business happened, I will be putting out new music again. The new album won't be out till next year, but the first song, uh, the opening track, in fact, of the album, is coming out in a matter of weeks. So even though this year's been a massive clusterfuck, it does feel good at the moment with new stuff coming out. Spring has sprung, the weather's getting warm, the flowers are blooming Case numbers in Melbourne, more importantly, are way down. We've even had a couple of donut days of zero recorded infections. So uh, restrictions are starting to ease in Melbourne. And, oh, man, it's been a long haul. But we're getting there. Um, There's a reason to be optimistic. And just having something to look forward to again is just uh, such a godsend. Anyway. This is episode 38, and it stars wheelchair racer and Australian sporting icon Kurt Fernley. Kurt's story is its just amazing. And to be honest, we only scratched the surface of it in this chat. He's lived a massive life, that, and it would take a week at least to cover all of it. And besides, listeners to this podcast would know that this is not a this-is-your-life kind of podcast it's i would suggest if you want to learn more about kurt's incredible life reading his book called pushing the limits but i really enjoy chatting to kurt he's a remarkable human being and also just a lovely man uh, it's a real privilege to spend time with him um so let's get into it enjoy this is episode 38 of good evans it's a bobcast
How you doing, Kurt? Thank you so much for uh, coming on board the uh, the podcast train. Hey, no problems, mate. It is, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I figure it's just nice to sit and talk to people at the moment, isn't it? Right. It's very true. I mean, <laughs> it's been uh, 12, it's, it's been almost exactly a year, I reckon, since we spoke on your uh, excellent Tiny Island podcast. We were backstage at the uh, Camelot Lounge in Sydney at one of my shows before I went on and far out like the world has completely changed since then um even just the idea of like being at a gig um is hard for me to fathom at the moment um how how has 2020 been for you (laughs) um yeah man like uh, how do you march 13 i would say that you know 90 percent of your 90% 90% of your work just disappeared, uh, March 13. Um, yeah, my- it's, a, it's, it's a date that, yep, that's the exact date that is firmly implanted in my head as well. It was the date that all the shit went down. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of the world was still functioning and a lot of the country was still functioning. But mm. I arrived back home from a from a gig in uh, in Queensland and I just, everything fell apart. And and if it didn't, it was Friday the 13th. And if it didn't fall apart then, it fell apart on the Monday. And it was uh, I, I, it was the same day that my wife got fired as well. So we, <gasps> we sat there looking at each other and uh, the first of many bottles of wine were cracked open. Oh. And <laughs> so hang on, so your wife losing a job was completely, was that related, completely unrelated to what was happening? No, well, she's been, she, since we've had our second baby, she's been casual and uh, okay. casu- casuals were the first ones to go. So right. it was a COVID-related loss at that point right. in time as well. So we felt Sheesh. the we felt the impact pretty deep, pretty quick. Yeah. And since then, I kind of spent a bit of time where I uh, look. I, I, it was about three weeks where you kind of sit there going, "Is this the way it's going to be? Is this is this the you know is this how long will this last?" And yeah, I I remember. Yeah, I went into the room then and and just thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start something new. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna, I've got to find something else that's out there. And um, yeah, I, I I went into the the room and called around and and started a half a dozen new little projects off the ground that one would develop into the 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 one plus one series on ABC and yes. Um, then yeah, kind of branch into a few other little bits and pieces. A, a podcast that we were able to get off the ground that's telling the story about the creation of the NDIS and um, yeah. And since then, it has been it's been just trying to figure it out with the rest of the country, right? Trying to figure out what 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 it is that we're all willing to kind of accept and yeah. Uh, pretty fortunate that up in Newcastle we've had limited numbers and mm. um but we've uh yeah kind of just just felt our felt our way through and um hopefully mate hopefully um the country as a whole can get to some form of stability over the next over the next few months and gee if we get there mate what a gift that'd be uh well i mean look there's I'm in Victoria, and um, so the situation here is pretty much, you know, for 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 my own personal working situation is um, really no different to what it was on March the thirteenth. Um, mm. 
Um, but it's only just been in the last few weeks that I've started to see that light at the end of the tunnel again. However, I'm re- I feel really guarded about getting too excited about it because I felt that before. We, I was, yeah. we were there before. And then here in Victoria, I don't live in the city of Melbourne, so I've been a little bit uh, buffered from the the real hardcore restrictions because I'm just just on the borderline that <laughs> separates metro from regional. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just, I can remember um, during, at the end of lockdown version one, um, when, you know, schools started going back and after doing this, you know, protracted time of homeschooling, which I'm imagining you have uh, been doing too, with kids, uh, so your oldest kid. How old's your oldest kid? Are they school age? Yeah, yeah. He's in kindy, and um, look, I'm a I'm a high school teacher. I'm a, so I'm I'm a high, I'm a I'm teacher trained, but I am a terrible homeschooler. I I, learned, <laughs> I, I cannot teach my kids. Um, yeah, Sheridan Sheridan ran with it, but. I uh, I was the person that would come in and take Harry for a ten kilometre bike ride, or, or yeah, t- yeah. try and keep Amelia out of both of their hair. But that yeah. pe- which is that- still a very important role. I mean, because I found it with our kids, like you know, you forget at school because they've got this routine that means that they spend an hour outside at lunchtime running around, and then they've got their sort of snack time or whatever. And and even bef- when they get to school for half an hour before school starts, they're running around and everything. So they have these, these these kind of routine times where they're doing stuff outside, and but then having them inside the house, all of a sudden I found it like I had to motivate them to like, it's like come on guys, get out there, pick up a basketball, do something. <laughs> yeah, well, we we needed that we needed that space I think, and uh, th- look one of the one of the things that I think throughout that period of time is like I would have spent four or five days on the road every week. Yeah, wow. For the last few years, so probably, and, yeah, probably from when we from, from when Amelia was born, and and throughout. So, is that doing speaking engagements and? Y- yeah, look, I, I kind of I kind of run with a lot of lot of stuff, a lot of speaking. Um, yeah. I do a bit of work across in in Perth and in Melbourne around employment with, for people with disabilities. I, right. I, I work overseas with uh, with the International Paralympic Committee. I'm on the Athlete Advisory Board. I'm on a few other governing boards and committees when it comes to sport as well. But right. just kind of lots of, thing, lo- lots of things in the air. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's also a week or so and, and you support, you know, I've got it down to probably about half a dozen charities that you're doing fundraising for or campaigns for. Or there, there's always there's always been something, but mm. I having that time at home is going to be very hard to go away from. And the thought of leaving my kids, you know, I would have left my kids for uh, uh, previously for you know six weeks, and I could never do that now. I just wow. I could I don't think I could I don't think I can turn that turn that off again um Hmm, which which is which is great it forced it forced me to realize what i kind of suspected and that's that i can't i'm not going to get i'm not going to get you know harry's few these next few years back or uh, Hmm. you know and and the, the the time that we have spent in this 
this chaos outside. But in our house, you know, although although a few days it did start, it was beer o'clock at three three p.m. Um, <laughs> in, <laughs> although the world is chaos, our our world and and Harry's world and Amelia's world is only affected in a positive way. Yeah, they mm. they are they are they're not seeing the they're not seeing or feeling anything that is the chaos. All they're feeling is mm. that mum and dad are here with me and they're here more often and we're doing more things together and that has been a real win. That's been a yeah. it's been a I don't know, hopefully something that I don't forget when we when we do start running again. Yeah, I mean it's funny like kids you know, I think there is an inherent kind of resilience in kids, but obviously that's also supported by, you know, if you're creating a home environment that always makes them, where they always feel safe yeah. and secure, then, yeah, I mean, these kind of big events kind of happen. And, I mean, they're also at an age where they can't fully understand them anyway, but it doesn't need to negatively impact their lives. I mean, I, I was I was worried at, at when, when mandatory mask wearing came in down here in victoria you know i was actually concerned about like how the kids would react to that because i know for the first that first day that i had to leave the house and put on a mask which is something i'd never done before it it felt really awkward and Mm. seeing everybody wearing masks you know it was really hard not it was just sad it was really sad Mm. and you know it's like being in a in a dystopian movie or something um i found it extremely unsettling and unnerving i did and and it's still the case now but of course people have gotten more used to it now it's not so bad but at at first it was it was a very unsettling feeling and i i worried about how the kids were going to react to everybody wearing masks i found my experience with my kids and certainly all the kids that they go to school with it doesn't seem to have bothered them in the slightest no they haven't seemed to react with I mean, and I'm sure that's you know there would be some kids that would have been, but the, from what I can tell, the vast majority seem to have just adapted to it with ease. My my young fellow, he is a stickler for the rules, so he's anoint <laughs> he's anointed himself the, <laughs> the, the 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 social distancing police as well. Oh, so awesome. if, if we're out somewhere and he sees someone come up and hug someone, he will go over and tell them you're meant to be social distancing. Yeah, and not trying. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we need to because when, if a kid comes up and does that, you can't really say anything back, you know? <laughs> well, I, apo- I kind of go over there, apologise and then take Harry away and be like, good, good, good job, buddy, good job. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, mate, like, I, yeah, I, I think that kids just kind of continually surprise you and they, they are resilient and there will be good things that come of this period of time and... Like you were saying, with uh, you, you got to the the point down in Melbourne where you saw those case numbers drop, and the, there was optimism. I think that we've in uh, up here, up in uh, in Newcastle, you've kind of seen this bubbling of numbers now that have went on for three months, where every day you see the numbers might jump back up to ten, and you think, oh, yeah, for 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 the first month, you think, oh, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, but now we are starting to get it to a point where maybe management of this thing is possible and and i hope i hope um that yeah we all find our way like every state gets to start 
gets to have that level of confidence again because it's a really weird situation where you're seeing state by state just have completely different existences and and tell me about it yeah well i see these places just one country and i've competed for this country for so long and and i these borders were nothing but a paper thin previously i never saw although borders only existed so that we could have fun at sport <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's right, all yeah, yeah. that's all i ever saw them and then seeing this this way hasn't been a it, it has that's probably been one of the um most unfortunate things hmm. that i that i've felt is that there is you know the ability that one state will happily and joyfully yell to close the borders to their family that, that live you know five minutes across this imaginary line and mm. I, uh, I I very much look forward to the place where we're all sharing in you know we're all sharing in this kind of yeah. ease again because yeah at the moment it just that whole state by state thing it it's just it's unnerving it is and yeah stuff like that has ever happened before and, and you know I definitely f- felt like when the top like when it first started you know there there was a bit of an effort i suppose there was a bit of a kumbaya kind of effort of like we're all in this together we're all in this together but that just disintegrated because (laughs) after a while with once the states closed their borders and because of all the different circumstances surrounding different states and how people were coming into them and out of them and um then every state just started to experience the coronavirus in really different ways mm. and then it become became so politically charged as well and here in victoria you know it it's been equal, as exhausting as it's been going through this long grind of um you know insecurity and um restrictions and not knowing what's around the corner and trying to sort of you know, do your bit to fight this thing and do the right thing and try and get out the other end. That's been a grind. That's been exhausting. But the equal to that has been how exhausting it's been watching how the political nature of it and all the the fighting that's been going on and how everybody seems to have just like backed into their corners mm. politically over this virus, which isn't <laughs> shouldn't should be a political thing. I mean, it's. Um, but it seems like we've made it that and, you know, hearing all of the, you know, f- the federal government, uh, you know, attacking the state government. I mean, you just know that that wouldn't be happening if they were in the same party, coming from the same parties. Um, I found that just exhausting as well because after such a long time here in Victoria, it's just like, it's kind of like we don't, it's like we we just we just need support. Like we don't need any more opinions about it. We yeah. just need support to get through it. It looks like finally we're starting to get to the end of it. The numbers are really good now, but for a while there, it was just like, oh man, this is hard enough. Just like, just, just don't say it. Just say we love you. We're we're right behind you. We're with you. <laughs> yeah, that's all I want to know. That's all I want to hear. And and if there isn't a point in time, if there isn't a if it, there isn't something that will be that would encourage the best part of somebody out and the the unifying part of 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 an individual a leader it should be this and yeah. you know you're growing up you grow up kind of hearing about 
you know, world wars and about how there were moments where the country came together for the betterment That's, of each other. Yes, yeah. And you, you, I kind of felt like this was our opportunity to do it. <laughs> and then, yeah. and well, it, then be, it I all mean, just... Yeah, I mean, like, we, we've, you know, every generation, every decade, there is a, a, some kind of existential threat. And, you know, climate change has been... Been one as well that you know you would I would have thought um, would be a unifying thing, but um, just like this one, and yeah, it's an existential threat that we're all experiencing. I mean, we're not experiencing it equally, but we're all experiencing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we like we talk about you know that idea of resilience and kids and stuff, and you know, there's such as a parent as you as you are as well. I'm sure you know you know have been a part of this. There's a, a, a real strong. Um, uh, uh, importance put on um, resilience with kids at school and stuff. Resilience has become a really... I mean, it was a mm. word that I don't... When I was a kid, I don't ever remember being bandied about it. But it's just, it's it's really, really, um, th- you know, placed on our kids as an important thing that they need to... Um, that we need to nurture. But, like, I don't think a lot of adults have done a very good job at... Um, <laughs> <laughs> At showing resilience over the last few months. I mean, like, when kids are seeing, like, adults, like, fighting in shopping centres over toilet paper and, you know, all this... If they, you know, were able to see all the social media stuff as well. I mean, I don't know, man. I reckon I reckon adults have... Uh, ha- when, it, when, it, when, it, when we've been put under the, under the hammer, been put to the test, I reckon our lack of resilience is kind of... Uh, and I'm not speaking for, of, of everything, of course. There's been lots of, you know, been some great stories that have come out of all of this. But, um, but gee, there's been some pretty ugly ones as well. Yeah, mate, when when it first hit our world, it was you, you rewind back. So I was, uh, we landed from Antarctica, and me and Sheridan had a had a couple of hang weeks. On, sorry, hang on, I got to make you stop. You landed from where? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the end of February, we spent a few weeks in Antarctica. And- yes, yeah, so you just threw that out as if like yeah. So we just flew in from Antarctica. The way that I would say yeah. So I just came home from Perth. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it was where and that itself was one of the most incredible things I've seen. Just uh, it is it is awe inspiring. It is incredible. It was amazing. Um, but we were in Antarctica, and it, it, there were there were days where it was fourteen degrees and sunny, and you're in a mm-hmm. t-shirt, and you're seeing oh my god, you're seeing ice that the, the the tour guides are saying that they've never seen you know the stone that is there because it's usually under you know a yeah. hundred foot of ice, and you, you, it's it's real <laughs> then yeah. the the impact that the climate change is is having, but also it is real of the real wonder that we could be losing and because these icebergs come out of the water and they rise for a hundred you know just an incredible um height and and glaciers that are just wrapping themselves around mountains and it was one of the most awe-inspiring the just incredible adventures that i've ever been able to to be on and then on the way back, you, it's a three-day boat trip back where you you know you don't really have connection back to the back to the yeah. world, and and so we had been away from our kids for about two two weeks, out of contact, only having we only were able to get in contact for like ten minutes throughout the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, and then we land and we start hearing stories about the toilet paper thing and. 
um, about how the you know the shelves had gone, and we drive back to Newcastle, and and yeah, the, it, it's just we landed in almost like a I I, I got home, and it was almost like I, 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 I don't know even know like it was a it was. It was so weird. You could only yeah. joke about it. It was. Right. It was like something had been created out of a a, a, a poor comic, you know. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah. But the the good of it, and the original fear that I had was that I know that my community because. I I know my shopkeeper and my butcher and, you know, I know my next door neighbours and I would drop around and I would say, you know, if if anyone gets it, you know, you can rely on us and they're saying and vice versa. And the shopkeeper yeah. held back some toilet paper for us because we knew, he knew <laughs> that we were coming home. And, you know, like, so I know that my community was so tight and I was that like we were going to get through it. But I thought of the, the millions of people that don't have that. And, yeah. and I thought that this could be something that does just rip a rip a sense of who we are away. And look, I, I, it has been nice to see that that I don't think that that has happened. I don't mm. think that we have really got to the point where any of us now, although all of this hardship that we're going and we're pissed off that you know this was done or this wasn't done, and you know we're but I think that we are all seeing that there is gratitude of 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 where we are in gratitude that we might be getting to a place where we are having the, you know the, the just just such a for, a future fortunate experience um and and I think I think my head now is to a place that this will have this won't have a negative impact on a on a sense of who we are as a country it, it will have its complications with uh, you know, in, with in, with with poverty, uh, it will have its complications. That anyone that was doing it hard before will do it, yeah. will continue to do it hard for for an extended period of time. There will be hardships of those whose industries disappear. You know, there, there, there's going to be a lot of complications. But I am starting to get to an optimistic place that there is a there is, you know, that it that it won't tear down the fabric of who we are as a country and it won't mm. t- it won't you know it, it it won't have that complete destructive nature to it that we will mm. we will see see the other side yeah. but it but doesn't it feel weird like the last time that we saw each other again i remember going back up and and you had a there wasn't anywhere to see. it was a packed room and the thought of being in a room with a couple of hundred people to do anything is it, it feels seems a million so miles alien. away. A I, so miles away. it really does. I think, like you know, I've yeah, I found there's been interesting parallels psychologically to it, what's sort of happened since March to to the you know the broader community to the, to the world. Um, it's kind of like has parallels to like the idea of the grieving process and how you go through these stages. You know, like whether that's shock and then, you know, denial and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like maybe we're moving into, I feel like anyway, I am um, moving into that final stage and it's kind of like what you were talking about of acceptance that, uh, acceptance that maybe things, there are things um, that will never go kind of back to normal. Um, And... I think I'm starting to just accept the idea that yes, 
life will go on and it can still be good and I can still do what I love, but it's I can't expect it to just kind of snap back to how it, how it was before. I think there are things, changes that have been made already within my industry that I think will will continue on forever like mm. all the stuff that you know artists are doing online and all that kind of stuff i think that'll just continue and also just the way that we practice um just general health and safety in in live music venues and stuff i think will change change forever because of this and i, I mean do- you know like you in a sense you said a similar thing at the start you know about how the effect that it had on you you know as a family man and and that that you know, you knew that that was something that you has changed you for the future as well. For sure, for sure. I think that one. It's it's weird. Uh, I look forward to as being able to get the uh, the peripheral. How strange was it, and is it, to be in an industry that very quickly and very sharply and very brutally you were told that you were non-essential, and yeah. when that all kind of hits you it was um it was it was a pretty harsh you know hit but i look forward to seeing life come back where we get that beautiful part back and the the interaction back and the the non-essential part but some of the most important parts and you know and i yeah it it will it will come it's just I'd, yeah, it will look slightly different and be slightly different on the other side. Well, let's um, let's move away from coronavirus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as much I could talk about coronavirus and all everything about it for hours, but I'm sure there's people listening that um, don't don't need that. So, um, <laughs> I, your so your podcast, Tiny Island podcast, which um, I was on last year when we spoke, and and a sort of one of the, the sort of premise around that is you know you're asking australian people from all backgrounds and different walks of life about uh what being an australian means to them what they think what being an australian is um and i i I can't remember when we last talked if i asked you and it occurred to me that it occurred to me at the time actually when we were talking and 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 since then too that um that you know your your perspective on that must be incredibly unique because you've experienced representing Australia on a world stage, every corner of the every corner of the globe. You know that you've been on a podium as the flag goes up and the national anthem is blasting in a massive stadium. I mean, that's an intense. That I can only imagine that that is a very intense experience that is very much tied to you know your feelings of nationalism and patriotism and all that like how does that kind of experience affect you and and how does what what influence does that have on you in terms of what you feel being an Australian is and what you feel Australia means to you I don't know what I don't know what has had the bigger effect on me um shaping that idea about what it is to be an Australian, growing up in the bush, growing up in a small community who demanded that I was able to be a part of their world and that I that I deserved as a young kid with a disability and the only kid with a disability in that area, that they still just 
just demanded that I would have access to everything else, that egalitarian nature. And then, you know, seeing sport as a kid, my uncle would be, he'd be um, coaching Australia for with rugby league. And I remember seeing him wearing the green and gold and, wow. and thinking that that was, that, that was where, where I wanted and needed to go. I, I, I don't know whether it was just built up in my head or just seeing all of my family have so much pride of seeing Uncle Terry, you know, take on that role. And and then you get to experience, you know, the, the greater sporting community when you're able to exit the country and you are wearing that green and gold and you, you grow into it and you, 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 you kind of, you know, you get given this thing and told that you're you're creating just another puzzle piece for what it is to be an Australian athlete. And you create this idea that this jersey is more than material, that it you know, that you've got to you've got to give something to it that 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 you you don't own it. You 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 get to you get to take it for a period of time and, and add your particular, you know, blood and sweat and story and 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 that becomes just one little puzzle piece in what is a massive, a massive picture that has been created by athletes for you know the the the, the last hundred years since we've been wearing mm. it. And look, I think that when you get that moment that you are you were given that real rare air moment, that one that you you know you're on the podium and you feel like you've been able to drag the jersey as far as you possibly could I, I i don't know anyone i don't really know anyone that got there and just didn't look back with yeah. gra- with gratitude and yeah. just knowing that that path could go a hundred ways and you know that 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 you but for you that that path landed exactly at that pinnacle and and i don't know all it does is just it just gave me gratitude and gave me the desire to make sure that another Australian would be able to experience it again, and I, I think that's you know I, again I don't know it I find it really weird when an Aussie athlete gets there and doesn't show it that respect and <laughs> doesn't look back and realise that that Australian uniform that moment that's not just yours that's that's a lot of this country has has either potentially is sitting down and sharing that moment with you. So you want to make sure that you bring them in and experience it too. And yeah, I, you know, that's I, I, I it probably is, and I hate even bringing it up because you know, but that's why I was just so shocked when I would see someone like Israel Folau get out there and and share that green and gold moment, but choose to use it as a as a moment that he would turn around and go, "Hey, you, you, and you, my fellow Australians, who are you're, you know, you're you, you, and you, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell." You know, like it's just, yeah. it's just not. I don't know how you get there and choose to do that. Um, for me, it just meant that you need to make sure that every Australian owns this, whether they be a young kid who's gay or a fundamentalist Christian, <laughs> you need to be there and, and give each of them that moment that they can be, they can be there and, and share it with you. Um, so, I mean, that's a massively, you know, a hugely positive, 
you know, outcome and perspective. And, you know, it kind of rubs against an idea of, you know, growing entitlement that that maybe this country is experiencing from my perspective. You know, I see that that, that is a kind of growing kind of trend. Um, that maybe that, that idea that just because you're born here, you're entitled to all the all the wonderful things that that this country can can offer you um without necessarily having to contribute in a, in a in a meaningful way i mean is that harsh is that a harsh thing to say <laughs> i think that uh, there is I, I i think that is a minority view well i like to hope it is and yeah. you know somebody who will say that because i'm born here i'm deserving of something that somebody who is a new a, a new arrival into australia doesn't deserve or that this is this is my country why is it my country because it's because you know well that's the kind of entitlement was, that i'm yeah that's the kind of entitlement definitely that you know comes to mind yeah i i think that that is a that is a view that i, I think is perpetuated by people that want to that you know it's a it's a view that's that's yelled by politicians who want to gain favour with a certain part of community, that you deserve better because you were born in this country. Mm. We, we, all, we all deserve to work as hard as we possibly can to make this country better and make sure that... I don't... I think that every, every person that's born here deserves access into community. Yeah. I think that every person that comes here and chooses or we are giving um, or we are able to allow somebody to claim asylum here, they all, each of them deserve to be able to feel safe and there are certain fundamentals that we, I believe every person that is here deserves, you know. Yeah. Um, one thing that we don't deserve to do is look at it, somebody else that's near us and say that this country is more than my more mine than yours, um, mm. or I'm deserving because of some f- stupid, some just arbitrary, arbitrary reason. Um, yeah, I when I did the podcast, I, I you you don't you don't want it to betray this idea that you were creating something or, or talking about or building this idea that you are creating an image that can't be critiqued or yeah. you're feeding a group of the population uh, um, a reason that they can say, well, I love my country or something and, and that person doesn't because they weren't born here, want to... Uh, want to criticise something or whatever. Um, I, I honestly believe that that is the that is the minority that gets given too much airplay. Um, yeah, I did sit down with people and you talk about you ask someone what do you believe it is to be an Australian, and the majority of people go. I don't know. (laughs) And then it makes them really think, is there something unique about being Australian? 
but most of the most people talk about the egalitarian nature of of this country and eventually start to head down that direction nobody sits there and says that what's great about this country well we haven't progressed anywhere in the last 100 years that we've cemented this picture in time that is that is white or that is western or that is you know that, that's just there are people out there that do it, and they do get a run in the tell, you know, in the on the telly and whatever. <laughs> yeah. But but they're the fucking, they're the fringe, mate. And they, I would, I I I don't, yeah, I don't entertain that sort of stuff. I kind so, of went around in about a hundred circles there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was good. It was good. I, you you mentioned before, you know, growing up in a in a really small country town. Um, in New South Wales, what was the, where did you grow up? Carcord, so, so central, what? central west, Wiradjuri land. So describe, is it Carcord? Is it Carcord? Carcord, yep. It's, so describe Carcord. Carcord uh, is a town of 270-ish people. It's in a little valley in central west New South Wales or Wiradjuri country. It's... Um, it's cattle country. It's beautiful land. Um, one of the last places that you would see go into drought in New South Wales. It, it, um, it is a community that forever, you know, forever. I will feel safe in Karkor. <laughs> yeah. So that's an amazing thing to be able to say about the place you come from. There are 200 people, each and every one of them I've known or spent, you know, 20 years with. Um, the majority of, you know, each person in Karkor, their, their uh, you know, grandparents were my great aunties or we just pretended they were. We all have a little tiny place where we all have a common, a common kind of just ideal. Um, and even the assholes we love. <laughs> you know, but they're from they're from there, they're from ever, You know, if there has ever been a truer um way to describe a place that you love, is you even love the assholes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way about the music community. <laughs> Uh, but that's you know that's that's just how it is and they they accepted me exactly who i was and they accepted that this kid who's crawling over the hills that he's just one of us and and that left a a pretty big impact on me and and it's amazing it's just yeah they they are my family and that's a place that whenever i pull up there and open up i i know that I know that, you know, each and every person inside that pub or shop or cafe or house that I know who they are and and I know that we are good to each other. That's an incredible thing to have. I'm really glad that you have that. Did Was it a place where sport loomed really large in the community and, and, and what, what awareness did you have back then in terms of the avenues that were available to you in wheelchair sports? None. So I had no no connection into the community that I would again delve into, the community of people with disabilities that didn't enter my world until I was about 13, 14 years old. And I, um, sport was everything. So, 
the Fernleys, we were we were five kids in my family. Dad was one of eleven. Um, half of them had kids that were you know six, seven kids in a family. That's kind of that's kind of just you know it it makes for multiple football teams every weekend and yeah. each weekend was outside in the field. I lived with my grandma. Um, we had a three bedroom house where I would share with my two brothers and my two sisters would share with my granny, which meant all of the uncles and aunties and cousins would use our house as a focal point. <laughs> and, and we just, we grew up every weekend would be cricket and footy and we, yeah. we kind of just lived outside and, and sport, I would have killed for for rugby league at that point in time or cricket to have been in my future and um yeah there were there were a few times I think in tears when I said to my mum you know mm. that I'm going to be I'm going to be terrible at this I can't do anything and and I think there was just this constant reminder that you'll find your place and you've just got to keep going and keep trying and keep keep doing it and so did racing become Want, did that click pretty quickly or or not? Racing, I didn't get into wheelchair sport till I was 13 and I was in um, I was in high school and I'd, I'd started to just probably retreat a little bit from my friends and from high school, I went from a school of 16 kids into a school of 300 kids and yeah. um, I, I started to stand out in a negative way and just was starting to go into myself and so up uh, until you were 13 you didn't feel that that just that disc you you didn't feel that disconnection i when i was a kid i would feel that if i went into town and people would ask me what's wrong you know but that was such a fleeting moment that what's wrong with you you know and then you'd go well nothing and i'd go back home and i'd say mum what what do they mean you know and but no other than that my school had, you know, between 16 and 20 people in. They were all the closest people in the world to me, and that's the Carcor school. And so I really didn't have outside input that weren't either family or community. And then, yeah, the first time I would really do it, I, I wasn't hanging around with other people with disabilities. I, they were just people that I saw in hospitals. They, I just thought they were sick, and for some reason I was the only person that was like them that wasn't sick i was never sick i was just crawling around the bush and so <laughs> I, I avoided hospitals like anything and um yeah it was yeah 13 years old my teacher um spent her uh, one term just calling people trying to figure out what options that i would have for for me for sport and uh she found a guy jerry hewson who was playing basketball for australia he brought out 10 wheelchairs to my school and he showed me and they put my peers in wheelchairs and I was kind of experiencing an even playing field and I saw myself differently and I feel like people saw me differently because all of a sudden they were in the wheelchair and um and yeah it just changed everything and then my town the little car would raise 10,000 bucks for my mum and dad and me, mum and dad would try and stop them, and they would say, "said stay out of it. It's between us. <laughs> it's it's between us and the boy." And they bought me a racing wheelchair, and they bought me a a ticket to America. And 
yeah, and they said that you're going to have to let him go because mum and dad didn't have the cash to go over. So they booked me a ticket to go and see wheelchair sports over in Colorado and about six months later I was on a plane and heading across. And did, and did that make you start to formulate the idea? Like where, where, where do you go from sort of like engaging in this sport and then going like, oh, fuck, I could actually... I can actually uh, really do something here. I landed there and I found 500 people in wheelchairs and I was this just out of control hillbilly who, <laughs> <laughs> who was like, uh, I was going through the, like it was just out of control and I loved it. I found a community whose common theme was just complete difference and just a fierce bunch of kids and... um. I come back home and I had this racing wheelchair and my, my, my teacher made an, another big bunch of calls and said, well, let's figure out how to push the wheelchair. And she invited out a guy, Andrew Dawes, to my school. And that was about 14 at that point. And he, um, he, he was a coach and he, uh, he taught me how to push a wheelchair. And he's an able-bodied guy. He never pushed a wheelchair before, but he found me in the in the bush and he would coach me for 25 years and mm. we would there was one conversation where he just asked he said what do you want out of this and i said i just wanted to see how fast we could go how strong we go and if we could like i wonder if we could be the best in the world and he said i'm in and <laughs> and yeah 25 years later we would finish at the gold coast in the common games as a 38 year old i was and uh Mate, he he just again he having pivotal people who are willing to do good and willing to help and willing to kick down doors and willing to give them themselves. It just it it was it was time and time again. Um, my whole journey was shaped by that. It's amazing. It's amazing stuff. I mean, even just just the idea, just the story of a kid from a town of two hundred people to to experience the world, you know, to travel to every corner of the globe. And I mean, it's just, that's just in itself is an amazing, amazing story to me. When you think about the little start, and I do, when I go back home and I crawl, you know, I crawl through the paddocks that we grew up and I'm crawling a lot slower than what I did, but you, you realize in this tiny little patch of ground, this kid who just struggled to go, a hundred meters away from his house, whose mum allowed him to to crawl after his brothers to figure out who he was, and you know that that first crawl, just I don't know, man. Like sometimes you just you pinch yourself about how far this journey's kind of taken us, and yeah, it's I I think that my 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 dad and mum in particular, they just. They, there, there is as much disbelief as as what I mean. It's it's been <laughs> well, a, a wild ride. Well, we need to talk about music, Kurt, because this this is supposed <laughs> to be a, this is supposed to be a music podcast. <laughs> but as as this happens quite often in these uh, conversations, is um, we uh, we we forget to, we don't get to the music bit, or we get to it um, very very late. But I'm going to push ahead to music and ask you what what's your earliest musical memory and what. What did your what what music do you remember sort of being around the house growing up? Oh, uh, 
I remember Johnny Horton, uh, um, you know, the uh, is it in 1814, it took a little trip. Uh, to, I'm trying to just real... <laughs> Sounds country. <laughs> it is very country. <laughs> um, uh, Johnny Cash. Yeah. Um, Dad will forever be, you know, associated in my head by a boy named Sue and oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Coward of the County, but Kenny Rogers. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, the, they're the song. Mum would have... Uh, uh, gee, I can't remember the, uh, the, the, you know, the Ain't No Valley Low. What, uh, what is that? She was more into rhythm and, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, and mum just moving around the house cleaning while some funky song was on. But dad was definitely, <laughs> dad was definitely into the hillbilly stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what about it? Like, uh, you know, in your teenage years. So, by so Triple J was a national uh, station by then. Were, were you able to get Triple J in uh, Karkor? Yeah, my yeah. my brother. My the first time I remember Triple J was my brother had a portable radio who that would sit on our windowsill and he would play Triple J in our room in the back room and it was the the coolest thing that I'd ever heard. You know, like when the only other things that the only other music I'd heard until then was you know mums or dads music mm. and then he opened up the world into he opened up the world into the little back room in Karkor. Isn't that um, it's incredible because yeah, I think that's probably you know, in my humble opinion, you know, one of the most enduring legacies of Triple J is when it went national because it only I can't I should know this, but um it only started going national I think in the very early nineties. Um went from being a sort of Sydney station or whatever. And um but yeah, once it started to uh, transmit to all the every you know regional and rural uh, place all, all over Australia, you know, um, you know there were a generation of people that experienced what you just said. You know, like it was like quite a shift from like hearing you know what your parents played or what was on AM radio or whatever, having a, you know this one sort of experience of music and then all of a sudden this other thing just like coming to you and um and i think that's why it had such a massive uh cultural influence yeah um, well, you, you could get you could get you could watch it on the telly so there was i would say yeah, that the, and stuff the, like that. the only music that we would get that wasn't um you know that the am stuff was the was the tv but even that i don't even think we were allowed to do that because it was sunday <laughs> it was like you had to be outside doing something else but you're right like it it brought in a cultural shift and i couldn't imagine the impact that it would have made to the music industry somebody who was who was who was um, in the in there at the time but from the viewer or from the the punter on the street, it just felt like there was a little bit rebellious of what we were be, being able to do because mm. you knew that you weren't able to play it anywhere else but in your room. But <laughs> it it was also just funky. Like he'd had it had this real I don't know sense of oh, just fire in it and yeah yeah I, Vi- it, vitality. Yeah, and Perhaps. I, I um, I remember that coming into my world when I was probably what my brother would have been, uh, probably about eleven or twelve. 
Yeah. But well, I, I grew up as a kid. I, the first song that I ever remember loving was Mally Boy, um, a John Williamson was- song. <laughs> uh, that was a, a, a young, a young, young, young kid. And when you sat down and you, like, try and pick songs, like three songs that were, you know, the, the, the songs that you grew up in or that meant so much, you, it's a hard thing to do. Oh, it's yeah, I know. That's, well, well, let's get to that. Let's get to the three songs. Now, the way that this, you know, originated in the podcast when I started it a few years ago was, um, it was you know, uh, the idea was people would look at their most played list on iTunes. and But now in 2020, it's like it's almost irrelevant now. Um Spotify has become, it seems to have become for most people, um, the way that they um, listen to music. Um, but yeah, I think like, you know, with my guests over, you know, more recent times, I've just kind of said, look, you know, three songs, any theme, doesn't matter. Um, go for your life. So let's, do you want to, should we get into them now? Let's go for it. All right. Uh- um, all right. Give us your first one, Kurt. Well, I, I do have to go Mally Boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Look, it so, was... There is this uh, this line about where he's... Uh, he, he's he, it was as close a real-life representation of my childhood, and I just heard it, and I thought, that's real, that's me, that's... You yeah. know, when you're crawling around chasing rabbits and he's singing this song about, you know, farmers and rabbits and dirt and... and um, yeah, I just remember it was the first time that I ever heard a song and, and thought, that's me. Well, I've ripped and dug out burrows on a sandy bullock hill. Eradicating rabbits doesn't take a lot of skill. But a boy born in the Mallee doesn't find them hard to kill. No self-respecting farmer lets a rodent eat his weed He'll shoot him and he'll skin him and he'll dress him up to eat But since the spread of Mixo, he's almost got him beat And I don't mind at all if you call me a Mally boy Where little town dogs howl at the morning train Where a cocky makes a living on twelve inches of rain where his woman provides and is rare to complain And I still love the smell of that sandy soil Some say it's dusty, some say it's gold Cos it grows the sweetest fat lambs the market's ever sold And I don't mind at all if you call me a Mally And it was also a song that wasn't my mum's, it wasn't my dad's, it was, right. it was, you know, a, a, a probably a six-year-old kid, it was, it, it was my song, and uh, I don't know, music, when, when you're sitting down and you're trying to think about the most, the most pivotal, when that's what I tried to do, just key songs that meant, that bring back such warm emotions for me. Yeah. I feel Karkor when I hear this song, right. and even still to this day, I do. And there, there, there is nothing that will spell out where I grew up better than sitting down and listening to Mally Boy. Well, this is great because um, I've never been to Karkor, and 
So this song, it can be, you know, it's like my little... Uh, introduction. My little introduction. I, my, my, I can just, I can visit it in my head. I can imagine it in my head. <laughs> did it, did it, did this start off uh, any kind of, um, did, did you get into John Williamson further than this or was it all just about the song? Uh, you, I think I, I was a, a little kid. I guess I probably listened to more John Williamson as an adult. For me, it was all about Mally Boy as a kid. Every single bit of it, but but I have actually picked up a record and um, and played his records. And Diamantina Drover is is a beautiful song that he's he's done as well. But he he definitely writes about the the red dirt and the dust and the texture and the uh, the farming culture. And he he does he does sum it up about as well as I've heard anyone. When uh, I was in year six or year seven in primary school in Perth. So we're looking at like 88, 89. I, my first memory of a John Williams song was performing at a school assembly, the song, uh, rip, rip, wood, chip, <laughs> which, you know, I, at the time I had no kind of understanding of what we were actually singing. I didn't realize that it was this, you know, it was an environmental song. You know, it had this really, really, uh, a, a really good message. Um, and I, so I kind of, you know, I, I look back and I really respect that. Um, but, uh, but at the time I, it was just rip, rip, wood, chip, <laughs> uh, it could have been, could have been singing anything. Um, I'm yeah, not, I mean, I'm pretty uh, sure, I'm pretty sure I sang the same song. I didn't even know yeah. that was John Williamson, but really, uh, I'm pretty sure that we had to sing that same song at school assembly. That's like one of only two John Williams songs I know. That and True Blue, the only hey, True ones Blue. I know. Yeah, which um, you know, look, I, look, I will um, confess with True Blue as well as as much because it's, you know, look, it's a it's an iconic song. It's very easy to criticise as being a little bit naff, um, <laughs> but but you know, look, there is a part of me in my heart, the sentimental part of me that um, will cannot deny that there have been times I, I remember watching him perform out on television maybe i was really hung over in the morning or something a little bit feeling a little bit vulnerable but um it, it did it 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 did touch me it really did touch me um that's maybe melodically it's you know and maybe it's just the way he performs it because you know what he fucking means it he means yeah. it it's not he's not just being he's not just trying to be like a you know uh, what's the word? Like a, he's not just trying to be Aussie for Aussie's sake. He's not. Um, cre- he's not creating a caricature. He no. he he, he has a genuine kind of love for the bush and the country and the land. Yeah. Uh, well, at least it. At least I hope it is. <laughs> I hope it is. No, I look. Well, me too. I I definitely. I believe that it is. I feel just such a strong sense of commitment, and authenticity from him that it's so. For me, with artists like that, it's like well, look. Even if it's not music that I listen to or that you know has. Uh, played a big part in my um, life. Um, I I can't, and even if I think the song's a little bit naff, I can't help but respect any artist who is doing doing what they really mean. You know, it's mm. just, and and I that's there's a, I, I believe him. I believe the guy when he's singing. Um, so well, I, I, you know, I kept you've on, got to give him props for that. 
I kept on trying to think, no, go a cool song. <laughs> okay. But I thought, you know what? You've just got to go. You've got to go. You've got to talk about the ones that, that reel and create an emotion and, and bring you back to a time. I think that that, for me, that is a song that... Uh, and I've actually... I've, I've, I've worked hard to attach moments to songs. So and and I don't I don't want you to play this next song that I'm going to say okay. but 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 so the world's greatest R Kelly I I between probably 2000 and 2004 I would listen to that song on repeat it was before I'd made it into a games but I, I hadn't won a gold medal yet and I thought this song I'm going to listen to the moment that I that I won that first gold medal and I got to there won the gold medal I listened to it firstly within 10 minutes. I'm sitting in the post-race call room. I'm listening to the world's greatest. I, I, I go back and I just put it on repeat in my room. It's a 23-year-old and I'm like, yeah, like my headphones on. <laughs> I go out with my mum and dad and I crawl and go to the Acropolis and I find this tiny little corner on the top of Athens and I put the headphones on and I, I attach that memory so closely to that yeah. song and then and now I can't listen to it <laughs> you know because <laughs> be, but, but problematic but, but now all I when I uh, you know it's funny I just I can't do it now I think that that's I can't get the association of the guy out of that song even though it's hard, it? yeah. it's, it's brutal and yeah yeah, that memory now is no. That memory now is kind of uh, you just. Uh, yeah, they, it, it, that's the one thing about sport is that they teach you how to be able to use music to either pump you up or to bring you down. How to how to attach yeah. it to something that's positive. How to how to get you through a moment that's uh, that that that's that's negative. And um, yeah, going through the songs, I would have I would have nailed that one. I would have said that that was such a pivotal moment, but. Uh, and a pivotal song, but I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. So yeah, yeah, I totally get that. I mean, as a kid, my who whose first pop hero was Michael Jackson. I know, uh, I know what it feels like. And even, <laughs> yeah. but but even in uh, more recent times, um, you know, they're like uh, like Morrissey from the Smiths, and you know Ryan Adams. You know, but guys that I really love their music have become problematic but i'm still working through how to uh i I still feel like you know uh, this is a for a whole other conversation i guess but (laughs) i still feel like um you can separate the artist from the song in as much as like your situation is a perfect example you know of a song that meant something to you at a particular time you know that doesn't need to change just because you find out later that that person wasn't a very nice person. I mean, God, I mean, one of my, I mean, I'm a Beatles tragic. John, Le- I'm absolutely obsessed with John Lennon. I've got a feeling he was a bit of an asshole. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's some stories that have gone around where he could be a bit of an asshole. Even when he was singing about peace and love, he was um, capable but, of doing, doing the opposite. Um, but, but there's being an asshole, and then there's, so I got a, sure. I got a, I got a park named after us the other day, and um, and they they say I said what this is for real like for good, and um, 
a guy calm and as as calm and as straight as day. He goes for good, but there's a lot of Rolf, <laughs> but there's a lot of Rolf Harris parks that are being renamed as we speak. So, <laughs> so, so there there are certain there are certain things that I don't know whether we. I'm not saying delete. I'm just I don't know how to. I, I kind of get a roadblock and I'm like, I don't know how to go past yeah. that. Um, yeah. But that's for it. That is a completely different subject. And, so. Yes, it is. And, I, and also just as a, one party shot on that too, which I've heard other people say, and I kind of agree with it. At the end of the day, I just think it's up to... Every, like, music is, a, at the end of the day, is a personal thing. And I just think it's up to every person just to decide. I don't think there should be this idea of, like, this person's deleted and we all have to go along with that. I think no. everybody gets... I think everyone just gets to make up their own mind and live with it how they feel comfortable living with it. And if that means, like enjoying the song for what it was but maybe not continuing to listen to that artist or whatever it's it's all totally fine okay you song know number and, two and i wish i wish and i and i i wish i could sit down and listen to the other song that i was speaking about and enjoy it the way it is but yeah good luck to any person that is that is there i know i think this whole deleting stuff i'm uh, yeah um song number two and you're gonna hate this you're gonna hate this <laughs> But I confess this to you. Oh, okay, well, how? why do you think I'm going to hate it? Before you tell me what it is, why? what makes you say that? Because I don't know. I, it, I, when I told it to you on the day, you looked uncomfortable. <laughs> and any sort of... Uh, when somebody gives you a compliment or, or talks to you about this particular XYZ had an impact on me, and I know that I struggle to get my head around it, and I immediately think that everybody has that same thing but um i year 11 um finally you know probably still retreating a little bit but figuring out who i am and and um yeah the jebs mate they were they were massive <laughs> <laughs> they, they were they were massive in my in in my process of figuring out who i was i think that the jebs were were there and will will forever be there and um and for some reason uh, jerks of attention just when when I was probably quite a probably quite self conscious conscious yeah. and yeah. going through a, a point of of um Never, you know, probably never wanting to show people at school who I was. I got to yeah. show, I got to show people at camp who I was. You know, I used to go away and there were five hundred wheelchairs, and I could be me there. But the jeb, that song, jerks of attention, just told you to be you. And I, I remember that was just, a, it was a, it was a massive song for that period, for my period, for my figuring out. Be me, be comfortable, you're 10 foot tall, and you know what? Probably was wasted. But <laughs> uh, during, that, during that period of time, that was in uh, will forever kind of represent that kid.
Look, that's it's really beautiful to hear you say that, and I'm really honoured. Um, but you know, it's interesting listening to you talk about it too, because you know, I remember where I was when I wrote that, and you know, I was the insecure kid too. You know, I, I guess how old would I have been? I was a teenager anyway, late teens, right at the end of my teenage years. Very, very insecure. Um, and so r- writing a song like that, you know, was probably like projecting and also sort of like being in a band too. When, you, when you're in a room with your bandmates, particularly when you're first starting out, and there's just an energy and electricity and there is a, like there's just, you create a feeling in a room that is really, um, really, really positive and really charged and... Bulletproof. Um, st- those kind of... Exactly. And those ideas of what you want to be can be kind of realised in that environment. Um, but, but yeah, it's amazing to, you know, hearing you talk about it because, and you know, that you heard it at a time when you were feeling insecure and you're in this sort of vulnerable um, part of the time of your life... Because when I wrote it, I was too, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's just really, yeah, it's really incredible hearing you <laughs> speak about it like that. Um, I've ne- a Jebediah song has never been played on this podcast before too, so you've created, <laughs> you've created a first. Definitely well done. <laughs> well, I said, I, I'm sitting there and I'm like, I have to. But then I'm like, you're going to hate it. You gotta hate it, but but it was just so yeah. It was again Triple J had had, had seeped in through to the through the back room, and and you know there was just more Australian music that was coming through, and you know you, I was I was starting to grow up, and you were starting to you know explore, and and yeah, it was it was a, a pretty. Um, tumultuous period of time but yeah that song cranked up you know you were bulletproof and it just kind of forced you to think about just let it go you know just fucking chill and and uh yeah it was good it was it was um, a it was good i'm so glad that it found you um so we've got john williamson and jevon i so i've got to say two songs out of the three we've set up a pretty eclectic <laughs> uh, group of songs. What is your third and final song uh, that you're going to grace us with? A poor Kelly. Is that another guess? It's Prodigy. <laughs> so I did have, I did, ha- I did have as uh, as a third option was going to be Jump Around by House of Pain <laughs> awesome. because it was uh, it was playing. It was my pump-up song. The world's greatest was the thing that I would play on the other side, but Jump Around was the fire up. But songs from the songs from the 16th floor, Paul Kelly, um, oh. he's, you know, I, it's the song that uh, I danced for, the, for the, the very first time with my wife to at our wedding, and uh, it just... When I hear that song, it is the, you know, it will forever be the moment where you are just the most in love with this person who, you know, who just 
is giving you the gift of saying that they're going to be with you forever. And, uh, yeah, and it just is the most emotive song that I can uh, that I can think of. When I put that on, I, you know, you feel warm and and emotional and um yeah it is it is it's Sheridan something's frying on the floor below I'm leaning out my window Sky's on fire The streets all aglow Somebody's singing To the radio I would jump from the 16th floor If I only could get next to you Put my head in a lion's jaw if only could get next to you I'm walking the floor I'm How did you choose it? For the for your wedding, like was it? Did you both, how did, you know, how did the choice come about? Well, well, we did do we 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 did do quite a lot of um, uh, home bakes, and uh, when we were when we first got together, and one of them was yeah, poor Kelly came on in a. I'm pretty sure it was home bake or 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 a big day out, and uh, and Paul Kelly was on, and I I think that Sheridan was, you know, we, we would we, she was there, and it just happened, and I it was never really spoken about, but I was just like the first song when we decided to get married, I just knew that that was the song to both because it's a fucking awesome song, but. You know, when you talk about attaching a song to the moment, that was mm. just the song that I wanted to attach to that moment. And mm. it was a beautiful, it was a really, it was, you know, one of the best days of my life. And and we, I guess, purposefully attached it there because uh, it's, for me, it's just a, it's just a beautiful song. Like it's just sitting there talking, listening to this story about what you would do to be with this other person, and yeah, yeah. And then here, look, Paul. I'm a huge Paul Kelly fan. I think he's somebody that I really kind of grew into. He was always, you know, his songs were always kind of um, omnipresent. I suppose growing up, because you know, you. you you hear them just without um, <laughs> without trying to because they're on the radio or they they're just around. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I really started to kind of dig into his stuff properly. By which time there was a lot of records. Um, and yeah, even now to this day, I still have moments with some of his songs where I'll listen to a song that I've listened that I've heard like many many times before, but. I'll suddenly a light bulb will kind of go off, and I'll suddenly understand, or they'll get this deep understanding of what it's about. Mm. Um, there's a song called Deep. Do you know the song Deeper Water? 
No. Um, it's Paul Kelly's song called Deeper Water, and it's just, and it's just a, a beautiful piece of poetry put to music, basically. And it just, it, and it tells a beautiful story um, using the metaphor of deeper water as, um, as like throughout life, you know, starting off as a little boy and go, being down at the river or the beach or whatever with your parents and sort of going into the deeper water and taking a risk and all that kind of stuff. And then fast forwards to being a teenager and being in the back of the car, fumbling around with, with a girl or whatever and deeper water, deeper water, and then becoming an adult and getting married and um, and then it f- finishes, you know, as a older person with a young kid and they're going into the deeper water and it's just an incredible (laughs) in the space of this beautiful song he's just written this incredible piece of poetry about life and about this how we go through all these different moments and stages through life and we're always sort of going deeper out to the water you know going a bit further out a bit further out taking another risk you know and that can encompass like beautiful things love but it also can encompass tragedy as well but you know life is just about going deeper and deeper into the water and it's it's just you know i'd heard that song a bunch of times but i can distinctly remember one time listening to it and just having a moment of like holy shit this song (laughs) is deep this song is so deep and it's so beautiful um so yeah and there's a bunch of songs like that that well even in his canon even the more popular songs that he produced, that he that he has written, where you kind of feel like you've heard them a hundred times and they're a bit overdone. I remember hearing uh, even from the little things, you know, like that thing I would have heard yeah. hundreds of thousands of times. But every now and Incredible then you sit song. you sit down and you hear it again, and like you feel you associate your own parts of your own journey to it, or you mm. you hear a sentence in it that just it hits you, you know. Like so, I would he, what he's what he's created is is poetry, like you mentioned, mm. and it 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 hits different different people in different ways, but it also grabs you. And the sixteenth floor one, it just it grabbed me and Sheridan, and um, yeah, it's it's nice to have thought about that previously about what song do i want to attach to it so i can remember this thing and it's just so perfect to sit down of an evening and throw that song on and and kind of have that memory again kurt it's been so awesome talking to you thank you so much for um agreeing to chat to me tonight um and yeah i'm really uh Really looking forward to seeing more, uh, more, more of you doing one on one on ABC and more of your podcast and um, look if, all the if, other, all the other things that you're doing in your in your post racing life. It, it, if the Jebs come to Newcastle, I'm going to go batshit crazy. Dude, <laughs> well, the next time Jebs come to Newcastle, we play jokes of attention. You, we're getting you on stage, and you're, mate, you'd better you're singing it. You're singing it with us. <laughs> <laughs> it's on. It is on. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it.